the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at them, and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. The Gospel of the Lord. As we stand, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for making yourself known to us, showing us the way of salvation through faith in your Son. We ask you now to teach us through your word so that we may be ready to serve you for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please, why don't you take your seats. I'm going to ask our preacher this morning, Dr. Jonathan Pennington, to come and join me in the front. Uh, Jonathan has spent the weekend with our uh, fellows, with the New City Fellows and the Center for Public Christianity, uh, running a retreat for them. I have heard in previous years that this is one of the highlights of the year, maybe the best weekend that they have. Uh, Jonathan serves as professor of New Testament interpretation at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is pastor of spiritual formation at Sojourn Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, of course, because he's a doctor, he's written a couple of books. Uh, 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 including Reading the Gospels Wisely, The Sermon on the Mount, and Human Flourishing, and Jesus the Great Philosopher. Uh, Jonathan is also one of the few preachers, when he sat down, I sat thinking to myself, I really want to hear more. That may have been because last time he was here at the nine o'clock service, his sermon was only about 12 minutes long. <laughs> he is going to preach for longer this morning, Jonathan. We're really grateful to have you as a friend. Uh, here at Holy Trinity and with New Sidley Fellows. Thank you so much for joining Thanks us so this much. morning. Thank you. Was it really only 12 minutes? I'm sorry about that. I guess I don't know how long this is going to be either. But no one ever complains about a short sermon, I'm sure. So that's fine. We know thanks to Steven Spielberg's stunning 1993 film, many of us know the story in the, in the name of Oscar Schindler. Schindler, if you don't know, was a Czech-born businessman who was an active member of the Nazi party, and he was also an unashamed financial opportunist. He married into money and then used his connections with the Nazi party 
to obtain bankrupt faculty, uh, factories and make himself very wealthy. And one of his major money-making schemes was an enamelware factory in Krakow, Poland, where he employed about a thousand Jewish people as slave labor. Now, if that's where the story ended, then Schindler to us would just be really a, another nameless, wretched Nazi from a particularly terrible time in human history. But Schindler is not nameless because as he witnessed the brutality of an evil being done against the Jewish people, he began to see his Jewish slave laborers not just as a cheap labor force, but as people. He saw their suffering and it began to break him. And while he was himself never a pious person, nor did he really cease his bribery and Nazi affiliation, something did change inside of him, something broke. And he ended up using all of his personal wealth and influence, and even to his own great peril, to save the lives of these 1,000 plus Jewish men, women, and children uh, from the death camps. And he gave them a better life inside his factory. He allowed them the dignity to practice their faith, to live not like animals. And then right at the end of the war, as the Allied troops and the Russian troops were advancing and the Germans were rapidly slaughtering all the Jews in the wake of the retreat, Schindler single-handedly rescued his Jews, the Schindler Juden, as they came to be called, by compiling a list of their names as necessary workers and really by hook and by crook got them to safety um, with the Allied troops as they arrived. And the roster of this name, of these, this list of names, became known as Schindler's List and hence the movie. Now after the war, the Jewish people bestowed on Oskar Schindler the highest honor they can give to a Gentile. And upon his death in 1974, he was buried in Jerusalem in an honored grave with the title, Righteous One Among the Nations. I recently rewatched some of this movie and it's very dark. And what I was thinking about him while meditating on our story today from the Gospel of Luke, there are striking parallels. Maybe you've seen them already. In both situations, first century Galilee and 1940s Europe, we have a tyrannical and immoral empire that has subjugated and despises the Jewish people. In fact, it's no accident that Hitler styled himself as bringing about the Third Reich. He saw himself as in the line of the Roman Empire. And we also have a powerful man who's part of that evil regime, Schindler the Nazi and this Capernaum-based centurion. And yet, this centurion comes to know and care for the Jewish people around him, and at his own cost, blesses and provides for them. And we could also see many parallels between the reading from 2 Kings 5 and Naaman as well. And this morning, for just a few minutes, I want to look a little bit more closely at this story, and then just draw out what God might say to us and be saying to us this morning from this anonymous but remembered Capernaum centurion. If you were to be reading in the Gospel of Luke, you'd see that chapters 5 and 6, Jesus has been in a lot of conflict with the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. In Luke chapter 6, he just gave what we call the Sermon on the Plain, a, a number of teachings about who God is and how to live in light of his kingdom. And now here in chapter seven, 
he makes a geographical move to a little village in Galilee in the north, right on the Sea of Galilee, um, called Capernaum, and it really becomes a home base for Jesus. He had been there before in Luke chapter 4, and he had taught and healed a demon-possessed man in the synagogue, maybe this same synagogue, we don't know. And our story is, again, about Jesus' power to heal. The healing of the centurion's servant is how the story starts and how it ends. But we quickly see that this is actually not really a story about a healing. It's about something deeper. And the something deeper really centers on this person that we meet in verse 2 of chapter 7, the centurion. And it's important to note that this story isn't just saying a man came to Jesus for healing. The centurions, again, represented this occupying and oppressive mighty Roman Empire who, who were the enemies and the, the, the tyrants over the Jewish people. He was a soldier. He had authority to do whatever he wanted with the Jewish people. He was the boots on the ground representative of oppression and suffering. But if you read the story, you see that we quickly learn that he's not that way himself. He has good relations with the Capernaum Jewish leadership. He built their synagogue, maybe with his own funds or at least providing labor. And he is what is seen in the Bible, what's called a God-fearer, someone who is a Gentile who sees that there's something beautiful and good in God's people and he's attracted to it. And he has a servant who he really genuinely cares about who's desperately sick. So we learned that <clears throat> unlike what we'd expect, <clears throat> excuse me, from a hard-hearted Marine-style Roman centurion, this man is compassionate and generous and humble. So <clears throat> when his servant is sick and he hears that Jesus the healer is coming to town, he asks them to see if they could get Jesus to help him. And the story could have ended there with Jesus saying, no, I'm going to pass. I'm the Jewish Messiah. But he doesn't. In verse 6, out of great compassion, Jesus agrees to go and heal this man. And then something unexpected happens. Our centurion, who is sensitive to the, to the very real social dynamics between Jewish people and Gentile people, he realizes that if if Jesus were to come into his house and the Jewish leaders were to come into his house, that would actually defile them according to their laws. And so instead he, friend, he sends friends to say, Jesus, I, you don't even need to come to my house. He says, I'm a person with, uh, under an authority and I tell people what to do and they do it. And I believe you can do that as well. And so we see in verse nine that Jesus is amazed at this faith he recognizes that this man does have faith. And so the story ends with Jesus not going to the house, but when they return, they find that the man, the servant, is in fact healed. So what do we do with this? We who are far removed from this time and place, how do we understand this? Well, a couple of quick things I think we could observe. First is that Jesus is God's compassion for us incarnate. One of the things that we see all throughout the Gospels is that Jesus has great authority and power, and that authority and power is combined with compassion. He cares deeply for us as creatures, and he cares about our concerns and anxieties, and he weeps, and he intervenes, and he heals. We can also see in this story that 
In Jesus, God's mercy is extending beyond the Jewish people. The reading from 2 Kings 5, Naaman was a Gentile who also came and found healing. Isaiah's prophecies speak of this. Abraham in the Old Testament represents the one who is going to bless all nations. And if you keep reading in the New Testament, you'll see that there are quite a few centurions who also come into the faith. Most famously in Acts chapter 10, a centurion named Cornelius. You see, Christianity's understanding is that God is now making a covenant with all people, Jews and Gentiles, all who respond with faith in Jesus. And so it's very significant that this Gentile models this faith. But this morning I really want to, for just a moment, especially put our finger on something I think even weightier going on in this story, and that's the issue of worthiness. Did you hear that language of worthiness as we read the story? When trying to persuade Jesus to help this centurion, the Jewish leadership say in verse four that he should, Jews should do this because he's worthy. He's done all these good things. The centurion himself also brings up the issue of worthiness in verse six when he sends messengers to tell Jesus that actually he's not worthy for Jesus to come. And we also finally see that all throughout that Jesus really is worthy of honor because he has this power to heal. And so here's the question. Is this good and noble and loving centurion, is he worthy? Is he worthy of honor and respect and gratitude? Well, I think the answer is yes. He has done good things, and in the way God has made the world, those who work hard and are generous and do good in the city or the world, those who conduct, conduct their lives and businesses with integrity and beauty are worthy of honor. Nothing in the Bible contradicts the way that God has set the world up. We do honor those who do good. But there is something deeper going on. This centurion finds himself in a desperate situation. He finds himself in a place of need. He finds himself in a place that he's not used to. He finds a place, himself in a place where he's not in control, where he's not able to fix the situation by commanding a person to do this or, the, or that. He's aware that even though he's used to being in power, he's used to receiving honor, that when he's facing sickness and death, he really has no power. This past June, we discovered completely out of the blue that my wife Tracy had a very large brain tumor. And within moments, our whole family entered a very dark and confusing whirlwind that has largely calmed down but is not over. And long story short, she has survived and regained much of her life, but it's been a season of a lot of pain and loss and uncertainty and she still has some significant mobility problems that may never get better. But we know things could have gone much worse and we are sincerely thankful. And thankful that she was able to, with very slowly and with assistance, walk down the aisle as two of our kids got married this fall. I tell you that not in an attempt to any kind of emotional manipulation, but to say that from this situation and many others in my life, I also, as you have, have known despair and have known the place of feeling helpless and out of control. And I'm also aware that for many here, you have faced desperate situations where it didn't work out, where a spouse died, 
child was injured or lost, a relationship with someone you loved got so broken you can't fix it, a financial or career situation that didn't get better and you're still suffering the consequences, a marriage that maybe brought you to your knees in desperation. And these situations are especially difficult for us when in the rest of our lives we're successful and used to being in control. In a group this size, I know there are going to be people who have all different kinds of life experiences. In the world's eyes, some of us here are successful and some not. Some are accomplished and some not. But I also know you as a congregation a bit. And I also know that there are many here who are used to being honored and are used to feeling good about your accomplishments and bank accounts and titles and connections and life perks and good and godly deeds just like the centurion, and that's okay. But sooner or later, every one of us will encounter situations where we run smack dab into the wall of our own limits, where we face what is actually always true of us, that we're not in control, just like the centurion. And friends, here is God's kindness toward us today. These desperate situations are the place where we can finally see ourselves clearly as we truly are. These are the places where the, the paper walls of our self-control are knocked down. These are the deep wells in which we can finally look upward and see the brightness of the stars. These are the places where we can either go off into bitterness or we can turn to Jesus in faith. These are the desolate, these desperate places are the desolate and soul-dusty places where the flower of faith can burst through our crusty hearts and blossom with green and magenta hues reaching up to the sun, just like the centurion. You see, Jesus has the power and the authority and the compassion to heal and to fix and to restore, and he often does, but regardless of how in his sovereign and mysterious plan, how that, regardless of how that works out in our lives, whether a particular episode in our lives ends well or not, in every situation, Jesus is inviting us to faith, to trust, to crying out in desperation for his help, for his healing, for his sustenance. And regardless of what happens, this is actually the most important thing about us. The only thing that is really worthy of commending is that we look inside and then look outward to our good and kind Lord. So I just want to invite you today, whether you find yourself today in a desperate situation or not, to turn to the only one who is worthy of our trust and our faith, God for us in Christ. Let me pray. God, we do thank you that in all of our uncertainty and all of our ups and downs in life that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that you are kind and you're powerful and you're compassionate. I pray for all those hearing my voice who feel that in themselves today, and I pray that you would fill them with your spirit and put on their hearts and on their tongues faith to cry out to you. And I pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.